Hey everybody, this episode of the Anna Quiet Podcast is brought to you by the end of Marilyn Manson's career. May all the monsters dressed as heroes and dopey clowns meet the same humiliating conclusion. Let's do this. So, Phoebe Bridgers destroyed a guitar on SNL, and all hell broke loose. The joyless geriatric centrists who think the show has lost its edge because Alec Baldwin isn't preening in his Trump impression anymore are really not having it. Uh, Lots of outrage. Lots of outrage. All the typical hand-wringing fury about wasting instruments and reckless excess is honestly really just telling on yourself, guys. (laughs) I gotta be honest. I'm really... Not a big fan of Phoebe Bridgers. Um, She's often painfully mediocre, with moments of redeeming glory, sure. But she even sounded pretty flat on SNL, on the show. And frankly, the guitar smashing itself was not very good. It just came off obvious and contrived. Not the byproduct release of this electrifyingly intense performance, you know? It was planned rebellion, and it felt very much like it. But to cry about it being inappropriate when it's been done countless times by men without the insane outrage and pearl clutching. I mean, Jesus Christ. Then again, audiences didn't fucking get Sinead O'Connor on the same stage a hundred years ago tearing up a picture of the Pope. And they didn't get Megan Thee Stallion's social commentary on her performance a couple months back. So I really don't expect them to celebrate a moment of danger on SNL, even if it is contrived, you know? Um... But if Pete Townsend, if Kurt Cobain, if all the other people can do it, if boys, mind you, save your fucking outrage and hysteria when a girl does it, even if she does it like a girl, you know? <laughs> um, the fuck, the guitar didn't even break. It was. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. We are here to talk about the new Foo Fighters record. And it's going to be the first record this year that I'm doing a proper analysis of in podcast form. Um, we did a Twitter poll over the last few days to see if people would be interested in doing more album review type things on the podcast because the, uh, the editorial version of album reviews is pretty dead at the moment. You know, just, just imagine a stadium full of people all given megaphones and a publish button. There's just no barrier to quality. There's no barrier to taste anymore. And rather than standing in the water fighting the incoming tide, I just decided to shift some gears a bit and, uh, I've been having a good time the last couple of years. I don't know about you guys. But for those new to the Anna Quiet podcast, or Anna Quiet itself, I'll, um, I'll give you a super short backstory. You're listening to Johnny Firecloud. I've been in the music world since about 2001 when I first interviewed A Perfect Circle after seeing their first proper show uh, back in 99 and the 17 or so after that. 
But I started out as a uh, music editor of Crave back in about 2006, which would then be um, heading up mandatory. And I did that for about 10 years, writing for various publications along the way. But during that time, I started Anarchiet with my best friend, Kevin Kogel, who worked at Universal Music Group at the time. And he may or may not have leaked the Guns N' Roses long-awaited Chinese democracy back in the day, which resulted in a SWAT team arrest and an FBI raid, and not to mention a Time magazine profile and so on. It's, it's not the kind of thing you want to get famous for, you know? But it was quite a weird time, and uh, what came after that was a riot. There was a ton of writers who became our friends and family, just riding that that music blogger wave through the the high-reaching days of 20, 2008, 2007 to 2012 or so um, before it all fell apart across the board. And um, now, various changes and developments later, we're going on 14 years as a publication. Jesus Christ. That's fucking wild. And the Anna Quiet podcast theme was written and recorded by none other than Alan Johannes, the magical musical maestro who's played with Queens of the Stone Age, Them Crooked Vultures, Chris Cornell, Eleven, so many others. He's a production wizard and an absolute gem of a human being unto himself. And that's that. Um, that's the tightest backstory I can give there. <laughs> but let's get on to the music. Essentially, it really shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that Dave Grohl has gone and totally embraced the role of dad rock mascot for the band's 10th record. Um, it's been coming for quite a while, and don't get me wrong, the dude is amazing. He represents absolutely everything I look for in a frontman, um, except danger, really. And that's one thing you're definitely not going to get on a Foo Fighters record. It's just not dangerous. Aside from the raw uncertainty and anxiety of the, the very first record, none of them really are, you know? Um, as a result, Foo Fighters music is barely ever sexy. Certainly not the kind of sexy that makes you feel reckless and dark, you know? Nobody's going to put a, put a Foo Fighters record on to have some earth-shattering earth sex. That's for damn sure. Um... <laughs> So you have to set the right expectations going in. That's what I'm saying. And if you do, you'll find that the new Foo Fighters record is chock full of heart. Medicine at Midnight is an earnest record for sure. Unfortunately, it's as forgettable as the shower that you took this morning. Don't get me wrong. Medicine at Midnight is a solid Foo's record across the board for sure. But it's clear that we've hit the wall on these four on the floor growl jams. Um... Even when the formula really opens up on this record, it's still just a chorus away from being that hunched shoulders, bounce, dancing anthem, screaming kind of vibe every single time. What you've always come to expect from a Foo Fighters chorus, you know? And I'm not here to exclusively talk shit, for real. But you gotta call it what it is. Last year was supposed to be a big one for the Foo Fighters, a huge one. It was the band's 25th anniversary, they had an enormous tour planned, a brand new album to play through, and it was very specifically intended to be played to huge audiences. Uh, when Dave was writing the songs for the record, he said he imagined an arena or a stadium full of people dancing to this music and singing these big choruses, and I would close my eyes and think, this is perfect, this is going to work, this is going to set the festivals on fire, man. But then the pandemic came along and shut everything down, and um, the band decided to delay the album's release and wait it out. And for almost a year, they just sat there waiting to release this record. And uh, I can't imagine being in that position, having something you're excited about, and then having to wait over a year to get 
get it out to the people, you know? Um, but yeah, they recorded this record in a creepy house in Encino that Dave actually used to live in, um, literally right up the street for where I used to live. And they recorded these nine songs, and that was it. Apparently, they had some creepy experiences there, a little bit haunted. They um, wanted to get out <laughs> quickly, I guess. So there's no tons of extra material sitting around waiting for a B-Sides record or something. They had purpose going in. And let's be clear. Dave Grohl writes for stadiums across the board. Like I said, he writes for the big festivals. But there's a new world around us right now, and... It's very clear when you listen to it that this record was made before the pandemic. It just, it reflects absolutely none of the struggle, none of the vulnerability, none of the reflection that each and every one of us has faced over the last year, whether or not we wanted to, you know. It doesn't represent any of the emotional impact that we felt and we've continued to feel as we come to grips with the fact that there's a deadly virus in the mix now, which is completely reshaping our approach to society. And given the extent of these variant mutations in various places, we could be seeing a much more difficult short-term future than any of us really want to believe. Um, I hope that's not the case. And the last episode, uh, 57 I think it was, was a hard look at the realistic expectations for live music in 2021. And I predicted, based on a lot of research, based on a lot of quotes from people at AEG, Polestar, Live Nation, even Dr. Fauci... Um, saying that, you know, we we could potentially see something by fall in terms of festivals kicking back off and, um, you know, maybe Bonnaroo, maybe Aftershock. But right now, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen. We'll see. We'll, we'll see as the months pass and things develop. But anyway, Medicine at Midnight is the sound of what came before. It feels and sounds very pre-pandemic. And that's not to say you've got to go the Eddie Vedder route and, you know, sing the we're going to get through this stuff. Let's get all hands on deck and, you know, rise up and this is a, a, a tough time and so on. But any element of that vulnerability to shine through, I think, is a timestamp that's important when it comes to new releases moving forward. And, um, t you know, shit, I keep doubling back on myself because vulnerability is a tricky thing. We don't want I don't want royal blood to get all soft and somber. I don't want Queens of the Stone Age to make yet another fucking vampire of time and memory song. But at the same time, there's got to be got to be some balance or some taking stock of the massive change that we've gone through, you know, as an entire world at this point. Dave Grohl calls this record the band's Saturday Night Party album. And I wouldn't put that too far beyond it, provided the night is light on adrenaline or surprises, you know. <laughs> it's a good record. It's just, it's not going to get you horny, you know. Um, Dave says that it's within the theme of, let's open up a bottle and let's get down. And you hear that. I mean, the opening track, Making a Fire, it's the first song that they made for the record, and it seemed to set the tone and the theme for the rest of the album with these groove-based, big-stepping, sort of sly stone kind of style designs. And yeah, it definitely qualifies on the tip of grabbing a beer and enjoying yourself. Um, Greg Kirsten produced it, and he's most famous these days for these huge pop albums, whether it be Beyonce or Adele or Sia or Pink and... Um, you know, the choruses sure as hell reflect that, these cinematically huge things. And, um, you know, Making a Fire even has a backup chorus of girls singing these na 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 It's just, it's totally mind-blowing. And the mix, the mix is truly fucking fantastic. It's incredible. The record sounds tremendously good with headphones on, and even better, blasted loudly through great speakers. But that breakdown around three minutes, 
holy shit, like, show this to any Foo Fighters fan from 10 years ago and watch their eyebrows get firmly cocked. So that chorus of girls is actually just one person. Apparently it's Dave's daughter, Violet. She's 14 years old, apparently a badass singer all on her own. So that's righteous. But moving on, uh, Shame Shame was the first single that we heard off the record. And it was real promising. Um, definitely was the first hint that we'd have a groove-oriented album. You know, That's the one thing that they really haven't done yet as a band. And at their 10th record, I'd say it's about time. You know, And the song is different. I was excited about it at the, at the time. Uh, it's a great jam. It just steps a little bit outside the Foo's formula. It has that kind of creeping verse that's that's really grabs you. Certainly not a screamer, at least not right away. Um, I think as far as screaming goes outside of no son of mine um you've got cloud spotter that's probably my favorite track on the record it's um fucking phenomenal it's just the absolute tits i'm i'm nuts for that fuzz funk riff and the little marimba sex beat uh it's got that extra spice that i find myself wishing so badly for on a foo fighters song but then the chorus hits here we go the pyro and the light blast and the screaming and man um you know, it's kind of crazy when you when you look back at Dave's drumming over the years, like on, all the way back to Nevermind, that's straight up disco drumming, like Cameo, the Gap Band. It's it's disco drumming through and through, and he intentionally did that. And there's a going back to Cowley vibe to Cloud Spotter, to the way that the rhythm is designed and the way that the, the percussion is designed that fucking kicks my ass. And I know it was intentional. Um, just the space between the beats. And it's a little less predictable than the rest of the record is, you know? Um, you know for the most part what's coming. And damn it, as I'm, you know, thinking about predictability, that the earnest growl acoustic for Waiting on a War... Um, I'm seeing on the track list, like, that's the next one up, waiting to come through. And growing up in the Cold War era, you know, the Salt and Pepper crew out there, I'm sure are vibing hard on this one, wondering when the bomb's going to drop. But Dave says that it's the most important song on the record because he wrote it for his daughter, Harper. And that's fine. Um, it's just as forgettable as the hundred that came before it, though, unfortunately, to the rest of us who aren't boomers and aren't recalling the Reagan era uh, horrors, you know. But honestly, there's there's no real standout radio bait hits on this record overall, aside from the promise of No Son of Mine, um, which is just a, a growling kick ass sort of gut punch of a song. But that one, that one really didn't take hold. Um you know, Foo Fighters made a strong record for the seasoning and for the dancey fun of it, but not the actual meat of it. And by the time the title track hits on the record, I really don't believe in it like I wanted to. You know, I, I want something to pull me back in, but this song has been written before. And this album, a lot of the re record has been written before outside of, like I said, outside of the novelty grooves. Um, you're not breaking a whole lot of new ground here. The title track starts a little bit like Bowie, creeping riff before climbing higher, and yeah, you can definitely see the festival crowds in this one, for sure. And No Son of Mine is the fifth gear rocker we've been waiting for, but we got it over a month ago, so the excitement over this is a little bit muted. Um, 
Next up, we got Holding Poison. It's got a ridiculously good chorus and a weird-ass breakdown and solo. This one could be a fine companion to Monkey Wrench, I think, in a live setting. Um, it's one song that kind of defies everything else that I've said about the record. But it sounds like it could have been on the color and the shape, you know? And that's a, a bunch of years back. And God damn it, are we falling into that like, oh, I wish they could make their earlier records over again. I don't want to be that. I love the trapdoors. I love the new ground broken. I love the, the evolution of a band. But when they stray too far into sameness you kind of want something that's at least got balls to it, you know? And on the other side of it, you've got Chasing Birds. It's the second to last song on the record, and it is not a Foo Fighters song. Um, not so much as the sound of Dave accidentally taking Valium instead of <laughs> Viagra, you know? It's sleepy, it's fantastically boring. And at this point, I'm wondering if the rest of the people in the band are, are bored with Dave's songwriting. Um, it's just, I absolutely love the guy. Don't get me wrong. His spirit is fucking amazing. I could not possibly give bigger props to his work over the years, his overall attitude and so on. But Jesus God, the guy needs a cheese cutter for damn sure. And so closing out the album, which I fucking keep wanting to call Minutes to Midnight for fuck's sake. Um, or no, this isn't Lincoln Park. <laughs> but closing the record is Love Dives, Love Dies Young. It's some weird shit that sounds very much like wondering what the beer line of the venue sounds like. Um, just for, for fuck's sake, what is this trifling emotional detritus? It's, it's ridiculous. By the time the second chorus comes around, you're really beginning to wonder if they don't just have a Foo Fighters song generator song er, set up somewhere uh, with Butch Vig turning this old crank like a vaudeville performer's, you know, trying not to fall off the stage. This song is goddamn painful. It's not as quite as tragically undesirable as the end of a Pearl Jam record, for instance, where every single damn time you're getting the sounds of dying of cancer or ending a relationship in the saddest possible way. Um, fuck, man. Brutal way to kick your fans in the heart as you say goodbye, really. I don't know why people do this on an album or where that trend came from, but... Pearl Jam needs to knock it the fuck off, really. For every around the bend or inside job, there's at least two the ends or parting ways and just absolute fucking heartbreaker songs. Like, don't need them. And if you got them, you're going to really close out the record. That's the final taste you're going to give us on an album. Like, for Christ's sake. Anyway, back to the foos. Um, overall, with exactly two exceptions, Medicine at Midnight sounds exactly like you expect it to. Um, Notice how I didn't say exactly how you hoped it to, because it's not that. It's not. I don't care how big a fan you are. It's not that record. It's a record that doesn't sound hungry. It's from a, a dude that's celebrating 25 years with a band who's not hungry at all anymore. And that's fine for what it is. Nobody should be mad that Dave got comfortable, especially not at you know 52 years old or whatever he is. But overall, the dude needs collaborators. He needs somebody to creatively put him in check. Because when he's outside of his comfort zone, holy shit, you get them crooked vultures. Just inspired, driven genius with fucking amazing results. That's, as far as I'm concerned, that's the best rock album that's ever been made. And I will very happily die on that hill. Unchallenged, though, Dave sounds like a comfy dude who's halfway to 100, who doesn't have much to say but needs to make a record because there's some enormous festivals to hit on their victory lap anniversary tour. And that's exactly what he's, he was setting this up to be. So there it is, you know? 
So in conclusion, Medicine at Midnight is not the record to take the Foo Fighters anywhere new. You know that. It's good. It's unchallenging rock. It just never gives you goosebumps. It never makes your heart race. And if that's what you're looking for in passion and life and rock, then have at it. But I guarantee you that you suck at sex. (laughs) And Jesus, man, there is so much new music to look forward to this year. Foo Fighters kicked it off. That's great. Um, But we've got new Royal Blood coming, new Death From Above, new 68. And I've just fallen hard for a band called Genghis Tron. You should check out their new song called Dream Weapon and listen to it in your car or with good speakers, just not through your phone. When you hear it right, it's a goddamn monster of a song that I can't get enough of. I've listened to it probably five or six times a day for the last week or so. And there's also a super addictive new jam out there called... uh, um, Fuck, I don't have it on hand right now. What is it called? It's from Bonnie Prince Billy and Bill Callahan, and it's called, oh, it's called Arise Therefore. Shit is super good. It sounds like TV on the radio got together with Tricky to make something just truly unique and really awesome. Um, It's called Arise Therefore. Go check it out. But in the meantime, we're going to close this out with my favorite song off Medicine to Midnight, Cloud Spotter. This song is the most untouchable song on the record and is fucking fantastic. And uh, looking forward to talking to you guys again soon. Got lots to cover, lots of ground to cover in the next couple weeks. But thanks for listening, you sexy rapscallions. I'll catch you later. Everything's wrong, but you've got no right